He earned an Olympic medal as an amateur and won stages at the Tour de France and La Vuelta. And, as you'll hear, he was lucky to even be alive to make it into the peloton in the first place. This headband-wearing Norwegian is also one of the most modest people you'll encounter in professional sport. Please welcome Dog Otto Lauritsen this week on Bobby and Jens. Okay, Dog Otto Lauritsen, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Thank you very much uh, for having me here. Man, I, I am so excited about having you as our guest today because y you were a huge inspiration to me while growing up when started cycling. Um, it's an absolute, absolute honor for you uh, or to have you on the podcast today. I'll try not to fanboy out too much, but um, <laughs> hey, listen, you know, I know your story, but many of our longtime fans maybe don't know why you got into cycling. And I remember Phil Liggett, Phil Liggett's voice back in like 1987, recounting yeah. the story of how you got into cycling. But I, I, I hope that you can share that with our listeners right now. Well, it's a, it's a little bit different story from uh, most of the bike riders, I think. Um, if I should do a short version, because a long version would take a long time. Uh, but uh, a short version is that uh, I grew up in Norway. Um, in the time, we were quite poor. Um, I lived, My father was a teacher, and um, my mother was at home with uh, me and uh, my two sisters. And then I get a, another sister 20 years later, so she didn't grow up with me. Uh, we didn't have much money, but um, yeah, we had the freedom. Out play, we didn't have... Um, radio, we didn't have TV, we didn't have um, anything of all the technical things that the kids have too much of these days. But I was never bored, you know. I was out climbing in trees, I was going with a newspaper with a bike, and I went to school even if my father was a teacher. But I used my feet or I used my bike, you know, but old bikes. And uh, yeah, I had a lot of exercising in my growing up. Uh, and uh, after school, with a little restless boy as I was, I was not really very school smart, but uh, I was more practical, you know, and I liked to be out doing exercises. So when I joined uh, the army after school, I uh, started as a paracommando. And uh, I did um, one year there, which... Uh, suited me very well. It was very uh, tough uh, lesson for a young boy. Uh, I couldn't talk. I could talk for one day or one week about what happened there, but it was a very hard lesson, uh, being outside your comfort zone all the time, but doing a very good feeling when you, uh, when you could do things that you didn't think was possible. So uh, I grew up as a person very much that year and I thought I should uh, join the army uh, as a work after the first year but suddenly uh, before I ended my first year uh, the police academy and always starting a police uh, education for um, special commando policemen because Norway had the oil platforms and the criminal was getting higher uh, I thought shit maybe I start joining the police 
and I joined the police and I worked as a policeman for some years. Very, very good. I enjoyed it a lot. And, and uh, when I was 23, a friend of me called me and said, Dag, I know you like to do different things and I have a thing for you. The next Sunday, there is a bike race in Arndal, which is the next town. Uh, it's uh, 150 kilometer. I put you in there. I like shit. I've never been on a race bike. Uh, I've done a lot of uh, hours on a newspaper with the newspapers, but with all normal bikes. So I, I uh, borrowed a bike, twenty-three year old, um, trained for one week, and uh, participate in the race. And I was really, it was something for me. You know, I did much better than anybody expected. The next week, I did another bike race, and then I got into biking. Working as a policeman, training, um, and joined a bicycle club, and uh, turned out uh, that I was quite good, with very little experience, but uh, very strong, and uh, doing all stupid things. Went always on the attacks, and somebody beat me in the sprint. But I get better and better. And in 1980, when I was uh, before I was 24 years old, I. Uh, had to go to the army for um, like an exercise. Every year I had to be in there for one week. And that um, exercise almost killed me uh, up in the north of Norway, next to Russia. We had to jump out with uh, 30 kilos sacks and gun and doing a, a big exercise for 10 days. Something went wrong in the parachute jump. Uh, we had like a 40 second free fall and the sack uh, was loose when I jumped from the plane and it hooked my leg in the free fall. You're going 200 kilometers an hour and uh, uh, my leg was all, you know, I passed out hanging there in the sky. And when I woke up before I hit the ground, I realized my head was down and my one right leg was hooked into the parachute. Luckily, I uh, managed to take out the leg and I fell to the ground and I was laying there, you know, I almost prayed to God that I was alive. The doctor came and and um, my knee uh, was all out, you know, my knee was at the side and the leg was almost ripped off, you know, but um, the, the two kneecaps... Uh, the, the ligaments, all the ligaments and everything in the, my knee was uh, all off. It's very hard to explain it in English, but it was very serious damage. Uh, the short version is that um, I went to a hospital up in the north of Norway there uh, for one month, big operation, and the doctor said that you're lucky, uh, you're not going to be 100%, but you're Probably have to slow a little bit down your work in the police, and but you can live very good. And I thought, shit, I, I'm definitely going to do everything I can to recover and be back in my normal police work. Uh, long story short, I started uh, after one month in hospital. I went uh, ten weeks with uh, crutches, with a cast from my hip down to the those and I uh, did a lot of training with the with the big cast and uh, the day before I took off the cast I said to my friend my first objective is uh, to walk 
to our house in Kristiansand where I was working. I went uh, I, I went away at five o'clock in the morning and did uh, 65 kilometer with the crutches. And that was my first uh, little uh, exercise to show myself that I could be healthy again, you know. It was not to, to show to anybody else, but for myself. But a newspaper uh, get a lot of telephones from people going to work and go back from work because I did like 12 hours on the road, you know, because it was a long trip. And But that gave me the confidence that after I taking off the, co- the cost, um, I should never give up, you know. Went to the hospital, took off the cost and training a lot to, to try to uh, bend the leg. I can still not uh, bend the leg 100% and I can still not straighten it out. But after three months, I can sit on the bike with a saddle like five, six centimeters higher than normal. And after half a year, I can sit in my position. And that was the biggest goal. Then I said, shit, I'm going to I'm gonna do everything that's possible to come back on the bike. And um, the year after, uh, I was uh, a Norwegian champion uh, biking. Uh, not in the elite level, but the level below. And my main goal was to come to the national team and maybe try to do abroad some racing. I don't know, my phone is clicking. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, and um, it went very well. It's difficult to explain this in English and to, to do a short version, but uh, I... Um, managed to do my biking quite good and went to a club in Oslo. Uh, I had to ask my police uh, master if I could have a permission for two years and give everything to try to join the national team and go to Olympics in 84. So I went to Oslo uh, with um, the biggest team in Norway and uh, started to win quite good races. Also in France, I was on uh, ACBB, which is the... a uh, smaller team that uh, a lot of pro, pro riders from Peugeot later, like uh, Sean Yates, uh, Phil Anderson, even Eddie Merckx had been in ACBB. And there I did some uh, some good racing. And uh, as you, you probably know, I went to the Olympics in LA and turned out to, to get the bronze medal, you know. And that was uh, the start of my real bike career. So... When did you ever had the first idea that you could become a professional bike rider right after the Olympics or already when you were in that uh, French team? Because they have put built up a lot of, you know, cycling legends already, like you mentioned, Eddie Merck, Sean Yates. Well, when did it cross your mind first? Hey, I could actually make this my yeah, job. In, in 83, they asked uh, the, because I was racing on a club in Norway, was sponsored by Peugeot. And they asked uh, to the French ACBB uh, because they've seen me uh, doing some uh, national races with the national team that maybe I could join ACBB and be there for the spring of 83, come back and racing in Norway and then come back in 84. And I said, we have had, we have had riders like Alan Paper, Sean Yates, uh, we had uh, Stephen Roach, uh, all these guys. And I said, shit. I didn't even know the names before because I was never into cycling when I was young, you know. But I heard about Eddie Merckx and uh, and I said, yeah. And I went down there and um, 
it went out quite good, you know, because I started winning uh, Saint-Tropez and I was winning uh, some some of the amateur races around there. And um, I even talked to uh, Roland Ballon, which was the first director from... And then uh, Roger Le Chier came later, you know, and uh, talked a little bit with them. And um, they said, I have a chance if you do well in the Olympics, because we have seen you racing international, uh, maybe you can join us. And uh, when I came home from uh, L.A. after winning, I, I said I won the bronze medal. I didn't lose the gold because it was four years after I was laying in the north of Norway thinking I, I'm not able to walk again. I'm not able to work in the police. Nothing. Everything seemed very dark. But I had a, a very optimistic self-confidence and I said, no way, this is not going to kill me. You know, I'm going to do everything to be back as a normal policeman and use biking more as a training to come back to the police. But very quickly the biking took over, you know, and um, yeah, I think in 83, beginning of 84, even before the Olympics, I thought, shit, maybe I have a chance to be a professional. Then the possibility started to grow in my mind, you know. I am so glad that you mentioned the 84 Olympics because that was the first bike race that I ever watched. And I only well, watched it because Alexi Graywall, uh, who wound up winning in front of Steve Bauer and yourself, he grew up right up the road, right up the valley in Colorado from me. So it was my oh, dad yes. yeah. who said, hey, there's this guy that's racing in the Olympics. Um, you know, do you want to watch it? And we watched it. Please, t- that... That race just totally triggered something in me. Not only was an American winning, but like English speaking guys, fit looking guys. It looked like fun. What do you remember about the Olympic road race in Los Angeles in 1984, besides getting getting a bronze medal? How did that race pan out for you? Oh, I I remember very much uh, of the race because I've been in uh, course classic, I think, or Colorado to prepare up in the mountains. I was not used to be in the big mountains and that turned out uh, that was very good for me to be in the altitude. And I met, I, I remember even uh, that uh, in Boulder, when we did uh, course classic, I met Steve Bauer there, which later turned out to be a very good friend because we lived together in Belgium for nine years. You know, I lived wow. one kilometer away from him and two kilometers away from Greg Lemon. All the years, and and our wives went together, and so it turned out to be very nice, you know. So um, um, now I, the race, I I was too young in my head, you know, and um, not very uh, experienced as a bike rider, and I felt on top of the world. So I went in all breaks, you know, all the way from the beginning of the race. I was, I don't know, I think I was in. Uh, I think it was Wechselberger or some other Swiss guy I was away with. Uh, uh, and uh, people said, shit, he's stupid. He's spending all his energy, you know. And and we get caught and I get in another breakaway and uh, we get uh, caught again. And then I went to the last breakaway with, I think, um, Davis Finney were there, Ron Kiefer was there, Alexi Gruber was there, uh, Morten Seto, which was my teammate from uh, Norway. Uh, and also uh, Steve Bauer, you know. And um, I also remember the second last lap. It was very, very hot. 
and I loved all the yelling Americans, you know, like they, uh, I've seen in Boulder and uh, in Course Classic and all these uh, races. They were very enthusiastic public. In the last lap, I, um, I felt I need one more bottle, you know, and I took that bottle and at the same time, Steve Bauer went after because Alexa Gould was already away uh, alone. And in the feed zone, Steve Bauer left. Shit, this is it. There was one lap to go. But uh, there were so many Americans with me and Morten Seta, and we was riding, tried, tried to diminish uh, the gap they had. And coming to the last uh, steep hill, uh, me and uh, Morten Seta, which was my teammate, uh, we discussed, we said, we're going all out on this last hill and see if these Americans can hang on or not, you know. And we went away alone. Actually, I was um, a little bit in front of him, but I waited and we two worked together. But um, Steve had then caught Alexi Google and they was like uh, plus minus 19, 20, 21 seconds in front of us. But I didn't want to go all out because I didn't want to use all my energy because I knew that if we don't catch them, we have to fight for three and four. So uh, we went quite good, but we never caught them. And uh, I had a sprint with my teammate from the same cl local club in Norway, and uh, he was, for him, disappointing uh, being number four. And I was very happy, storming happy with my bronze medal, you know. So, uh, Dark Otto, when you say you we talk about your going on all the attacks and so on. What type of rider were you? Were you a climber, a puncher, or you just had a big engine and could go for a very long time? Were you fast, a time trialer? What type of rider have you I, been? I was uh, so young in cycling that I don't know really what sort of type rider I was, but sometimes I could uh, be good in uh, the, the small steep hills and I was quite good in uh, time trials. Uh, but I was not super, and I was not super sprinter either. So I didn't. I don't think I had any special qualities. More like a fighter, you know, a little bit like you, but not maybe as strong as you. But uh, more like a fighter. And sometimes I could climb very well. Like the stage here, I uh, won in Tour de France was Lusadidan, which with which was uh, called Obisk, and it was four mountains that day. And I was uh, in a storming form, but I think I was a little bit too heavy to be a, a really good climber. But sometimes I could. And uh, but I, my favorite races was more like Tour of London, uh, these races. And I, I never won Flandern, but I was number three there, and uh, I was alone on the Mur, and uh, and then um, Van Hoydong. Uh, the Belgium uh, master came after me between Bosberg and the Mur, and he caught me, and he dropped me on the on the Bosberg, and um, I got got caught again from a little group, and then I sprinted and uh, got third place there. So that was my kind of races, I think, Flandern. You know, one thing that really stuck out to me instantly was when, okay, we, we spoke a little bit about your time at Peugeot. I mean, that must have been an amazing experience with the guys that you mentioned, um, your teammates, you know, I, icons of the sport, many of them still working in the sport. I'm sure it was mega old school, but I didn't know anything about Peugeot. But when you joined 7-Eleven no. in 1987 and 
the first, I think, winning magazine or Velo News came with this poster. And I showed Jens and our producer, Mark, this poster that honestly, I think I still have up in my attic in my box of childhood memories was this iconic photo of the original 7-Eleven team. It was obviously Jim Okowitz, Mike Neal, Roy Nickman, Alex Stita, Chris Carmichael, Bob Roll, Eric Hyden, Tom Schuler, Davis Finney, Raul Alcala, um, <laughs> Jeff Pierce, Doug Shapiro, Ron Kiefel, Andy Hampson, yourself, and Jens Vegerby. And, wow, you know all the names, yeah. Oh. Uh, and also Eric Hyden was with us uh, as a, a working doctor, you know, together with Massimo Testa. Yeah, so, uh, that's one guy that's missing is 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 Max Testa here. But I had that picture up on my wall. And wow. all of a sudden, like, I started paying attention to you. And you started the look that changed all facets of cycling, at least here in America, the headband. You know, you had the headband, the 7-Eleven headband. Yeah, yeah. And I was just like, yeah. I mean, I couldn't pull it off like you, but like that that headband look was so awesome. And, you know, just watching you race throughout the years with that headband look. And many of us tried to emulate it, but very, very few of us, um, you know, A, race without a helmet like you guys used to. But um, was, was that part of your look? I mean, did you always wear a headband or did all the photos that I had of you up on my wall just happen to have a headband? I think that must be a co coincidence, but it's uh, a little bit crazy because I feel that I was racing in the old days and and uh, the old days you didn't have to wear a helmet. Uh, I think uh, I was very happy when we started to wear the helmet, but I've seen uh, many photos of us doing the Tour de France and I just had the 7-Eleven headband on and I think, wow, we were really crazy, 120Ks uh, down the hill and uh, with, with the headband, it didn't help anything if you cried. But um, yeah, it, I didn't start that uh, thing, but I think it was part of our clothing. Uh, we had possibility of uh, very nice clothes with 7-Eleven. And um, even even this year, you know, in November, uh, last year in November, we have a reunion. That's a good thing with 7-Eleven, you know. All the way since I was racing in the 80s, every five years we have a reunion. So we we had a big reunion with more than 20 guys going to Park City with a meeting with Jeff uh, Okovic and Eric Hyde and Pasco Testa, hiking in the mountains and having fun, you know. And we do that every five years. And that's really, really nice. So now that you seem to have a, such a good connection still to your teammates, once you turned professional, where did you live? And why did you choose to live there where you did live? And what languages did you have to learn? Yeah, I, I, I was very, uh, you know, uh, not y young, but uh, I, I didn't speak French when I uh, turned professional. But when I started in the ACVB, I said to my wife, if I if I have to race in France, I have to learn French. So I went on a six weeks intensive course, learning a little bit of French. And uh, well, when I went to France, I lived with ACVB in um, in Boulogne, Bilancourt, uh, just outside Paris, and then also in uh, Les Isambres in uh, in south of France. We were on training camps. Uh, Michel Vigan was uh, an old guy who was the big boss of uh, ACB at that time. And uh, I learned the hard way because they never speak English. Uh, in the, all the tactic meetings, everything 
had to be in French. So uh, I learned the hard way. And um, But after two years living, I lived in uh, Lille the first two years. Together with actually uh, Robert Miller, he lived in the next building. Sean Yates lived there uh, a lot with me uh, because he turned out to be one of my best friends in cycling. And uh, very often he lived with me and he came together with me in Norway and he lived with my house in Belgium. After two years, I moved to Belgium. As I said, uh, very close to Steve Bauer and Greg LeMond. And that, that was really nice. And we still are good friends with the people or the neighbors that we have. I even this evening talked to one of my best friends from Gulligan, uh, the little town outside Kortrijk where I lived in uh, nine or ten years. So I learned the, the hard way, uh, the language. But I, I'm sure riders, Norwegian riders like Tor Hushoft, Alexander Kristoff, Edvald Bosenhagen, Lars Peter Nordhug, you know, just to name a few, looked up to you when you were racing and used you as an idol. But who did you look up to? Because it sounded like you didn't really know too much about cycling before you were already in the limelight. Yeah, the thing is, I... I didn't really know much about cycling before I started. So, and I started with a coincidence as my friend put me into a race. And um, so I didn't really have any, uh, I heard about Bernard Hinault. Uh, I heard about Eddie Marks, of course, uh, but I didn't really have any pictures of uh, them on the wall when I was young because I didn't follow cycling. I didn't really follow football either, as most of my friends did, because I, I'm hopeless with ball, you know. I I, uh, I can't score on an open ball, goal, you know. So I didn't really have... My father was my my biggest fan, you know, and he loved uh, being out in the mountains, uh, walking, hiking, uh, yeah, that kind of stuff, and didn't have any cycling fans, actually. And when I started cycling, I... Um, I liked the hard guys, like, uh, for example, uh, yeah, who, who I liked Bernard Hinault, of course. He, he was uh, he was a special guy, but uh, he was a rough guy. You know, he was a tough guy. Also, Phil Anderson, that type of riders, I really looked up to or or raced together with. And we'll be right back after this short break. You had a long career, right? You started late, but you finished your career relatively late of age, yeah. right? And back in the days, it was really untypical, yeah. right? Because when I turned professional in, in 1998, they told me, well, if you're 32 years old, you're an old <laughs> professional, but you rode your, your uh, bike until, what, 37? How did that happen? I think it's, uh, like you said, Because I started late, uh, I also had a lot of energy. It, uh, I didn't use up all my energy or fighting spirit in the 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. But I, I think I missed a lot of the tactile uh, uh, things that I should have practiced in the young days. So I'm really sorry that I didn't start before, but that's how it is. I had to do the best uh, of it. and. I, I started, uh, I stopped racing in uh, the end of the season 94. 
And uh, in uh, 96, I was 40, you know, so I was uh, actually, I think I was uh, 38 when I stopped cycling. I should stop in 93 uh, with the World Championship in Norway. And uh, that was a World Championship I was very close to win, but uh, my uh, ex-teammate uh, Lance Armstrong came there in the end. I was actually in the breakaway and uh, in the last lap in, uh, in Oslo in 93. And uh, Lance come from behind. Uh, or uh, I think he was with Nudvig and uh, some other guys, and he jumped from them up to me. And I just had uh, dropped, uh, I think uh, it was not Eric Brooking, but it was somebody else from Hollow. Uh, anyway, I ended up seven. But Lance, uh, Lance was uh, World Champion very young then with actually Motorola, and I just uh, joined TVM for the last uh, year. But since it, it was a good season, I won also a stage in Tour of Spain, a nice mountain stage. I said, shit, I do another year. And I did, then I did 94 also. So that was my um, 11th season as a pro, you know. So started late, uh, but I get some good uh, good uh, years anyway. And uh, I'm quite happy with my, my uh, career, uh, but I'm missing a few things, you know, and... I think the the World Championship in the 1990, I was very, very close to winning. Uh, the last lap, I was uh, together with Dirk de Wolf uh, in the last lap in the last mountain, and he crashed and I crashed. I broke my bike and he got caught by really dance and they get gold and silver. And I was really almost depressed for half a year because of that, uh, that uh, crash there in the end. But uh, anyway... I've done some good things and some bad things, and I'm very happy with my career anyway. Well, I got to go back and mention one of the good things. Um, like I said, I was still new to cycling in 1997, uh, 1987, I'm sorry. Um, the tour coverage was not what it is today, to say the least. But obviously, I was paying attention to the race as much as I could. I think it came on like Wide World of Sports for an hour, you know, once a weekend or something like that. And, you know, Davis Finney won the 12th stage in a sprint. I remember Jeff Pierce winning on the final stage on the Champs-Élysées. But your stage win on Luz Ardiden on stage 14, which just happened to be Bastille Day, um, was something clicked in me. Not only was it you, you know, winning a mountaintop finish, but like, you know, 7-Eleven, like didn't know that you were much of a climber and for you to come out of the fog. And again, I'm, I'm listening. I, I hear Phil Liggett's voice in my head as he's, as, as you're winning that race. Um, how did you pull off winning solo that day in front of all those mountain goats? I mean, Lucho Herrera was there. Andy Hampston was there. Delgado was there. For you know, give me a little bit of fanboy information on how that day played out for you. I, uh, 87, I think it was the year that I was in my best ever form, you know. Uh, I was really stomping. We were starting in Germany, and uh, it was a long tour to France because we, since we started in Germany, it was before the war fell, and uh, so the, the tour was more than three weeks. Um, we had um. I had a very good feeling the whole uh, first week, you know, and it was very warm. Uh, I was most of the days trying to get in break, 
we were we were definitely riding for Andy Hampson and Alcala as a second guy. You know, both of them uh, very fantastic climbers. And uh, uh, I can't remember that day. You know, fourteenth uh, of July, I was going in an early breakaway up uh, I think Marie Blanc, uh, very very steep hill, and we we come away uh, with a group and. Um, some guys, uh, Clever Roland, went away from that group and uh, we got caught on Colobisk. And I was riding with Andy Hampson because he was like the captain on the team. And on the top of the Obisk, it goes down and go up again. And I was riding and Andy said to me, Dag, I see you are strong. You, If you can try to attack instead of helping her, uh, maybe you can help me on Luz Aridane, you know? Um, and um, I try, I I tried everything. You know, it was like you said, foggy and rainy. There was no TV uh, because the helicopters couldn't go up. Uh, so um, I uh, I caught um, I caught Club Orla, and I dropped him. And Chen um, Fan uh, Fleet was actually uh, was also away, and I ca- caught him in the in the bottom of New Zealand and. Uh, then I the group with Andy Hampson and um, Stephen Roach, which uh, was winning the tour there. They were coming uh, very close to me, less than two minutes in the bottom. And then I heard from the radio from Ocha that Harrell uh, has uh, attacked Andy Hampson and he was coming behind. I was just giving everything all the way up and I never turned around and I couldn't, I didn't dare to turn around. I was just praying to uh, something, you know, and said, oh, come on, come on. And I think I was like seven or eight seconds in front of her on the finish. So that was uh, that was the best day of my life on the bike, you know. Um, back then, we talked a lot about your English-speaking teammates. But uh, for our listeners, we talk about the um, 80s in cycling. How many Scandinavians were in the peloton in the Tour de France? Nobody, no. right? You were the only Scandinavian bike rider and one of the few English-speaking. Were, were you English-speaking people? Were you like a band of brothers <laughs> against the French-speaking? Or how, how did it work? Just for our yeah. listeners, for a better understanding. Yeah, was, uh, I don't know really, but um, I really... Uh, it was nice to talk to Stephen Roach because he was Irish. But um, him and Sean Kelly, you know, uh, they're both from Ireland, but... Uh, They couldn't understand each other, so they were speaking French when they were talking to each other together. <laughs> But uh, I really liked it. It was very funny. No, that's yeah, unreal. It was so funny, you know. <laughs> But, uh, you know, uh, I was very good friend with uh, Sean Yates, Alan Paper. They was like uh, helping me the first year in Peugeot. So uh, all us English speaking, we were always coming together, of course. Because some of the French guys, even if they knew French, they wouldn't speak French. I, I realized after two years in Couchot, joining 7-Eleven, and uh, a few years later I met uh, Cornier, which was on um, on my team, and he speaks perfect English. And I'd been with him for two years on the team, and I, he never spoke one word of English to me. <laughs> But that's the way you learn also, you know. But uh, it was funny. It was, it was very good to have uh, English-speaking friends in the peloton, even if they were on a different team, you know. Yeah, yeah. Those it's it's always funny when uh, you leave the team and then realize that you're speaking to your teammate that you've had or roommate even, and 
that maybe he un- was understanding what you were saying on the phone, you know, the whole whole time, but he never let you <laughs> yeah. let you in on it. But um, Dag, I don't know if you remember this, but um, after the Tour de France in 1998, you know, that was before all the big after parties and stuff like that. Um, we had a little bit of a reception with my teammates, um, Kofidis up on top of a hotel, but then there was no food. So my mom and dad and my sister were with me and my wife. And they said, I said, I really would love to go to the Mexican restaurant that the team 7-Eleven guys used to go to after the Tour de France every year. And it was Cafe Pacifico. Cafe Pacifico. Cafe Pacifico. <laughs> and there uh, I am, you know, what, it's nine o'clock on a Sunday after the Tour de France sort of night. Not many people are in there. I'm there with my my family, like I just said. And I look behind me and you're having a drink at the bar. And I was like, I said to my mom and my dad, I said, that's Doug Otto Lordson. They're like, where? Turned around and there you were. And I, I don't know if you remember this, but I went up to you like, okay, I had just gotten off the podium of the Tour de France, but like those memories that you gave me, the inspiration that you gave me, I don't remember the words I said exactly, and I hopefully, you know, didn't scare you, but I walked over to you and thanked you for your inspiration. And that's that's how much having an idol or somebody to look up to meant, because on that day that was, you know, was, let's face it, a pretty crazy tour, a pretty crazy day, um, I took the time to to actually thank you, and that's why... I'm so super excited to have you on the podcast today. And even if you don't remember that, I remember it like it was yesterday. And um, just thank you for all you did for for our generation. <laughs> but I, I was going to tell you before you started the story that uh, I remember very much that evening. It was uh, 1988 in the Cafe Pacifico. We all were drinking uh, peaches and uh, we had the Mexican food. And I remember you came. And I remember you were a much bigger star than me, you know, in cycling and with the results that I uh, not envy. I think uh, you have you are you have been such a good rider. And I also remember that you said that you have been looking up to me when you were young, you know. And uh, so um, this is not a surprise to me because I really remember meeting you there, and awesome. I remember exactly what you said, you know. And I was proud, but uh, uh, that you even mentioned me you know so that's true oh. i think doc otto you shouldn't underestimate yourself i mean you were a third at olympics you know you had fantastic races and you were paving the path for a lot of these younger riders we see these days you know you were making it easier for them to become professional so don't underestimate yourself you're an absolute legend <laughs> of the sport well i i don't really see see myself that way you know but but if you compare it to um, other people that have also fantastic careers, I think that my accident uh, is a little bit of the difference, you know. Without the accident, maybe I was never a professional. Uh, but I'm uh, still handicapped from the accident. I have 15 centimeters of steel in my knee, and I can't sit on my... Uh, well, I can't sit down because I can't bend it. I can't straighten it already, uh, but it's good enough for cycling. And uh, because of cycling, I'm still living very good with it. So I think that's the, the the one thing which is special with my career. But otherwise, I 
I have uh, tourists who grew up a few kilometers from me, and I'm very proud that I paid the road a little bit for him, you know, because he he could have been a skier. Uh, he was very good skier also all the way up to junior, but he chose uh, to do cycling, maybe a little bit, because I showed that even if you come from Little Grimstar, you can be a professional bike rider. Uh, so I'm still good friend with Tori, and um, uh, now working together in in Tour de France with him uh, with the same TV company. So that's nice. And and I don't see myself as a star in in no no way, you know. But I, I've done my uh, I've done my things. But uh, there is a lot of other good uh, athletes also, you know. So. Well, let's talk about those athletes for a second. I mean, you know, you work for the Norwegian TV station TV2 now. Um, yep. you're, you're watching a lot of bike races. Obviously, there's general generational differences between different generations, different riders. But let's face it. I mean, we're we're getting spoiled by the talent that we see on a eh. weekly basis. Every race, we're like, that's one of the best races I've ever seen. But then you just see, wait till the next weekend, and it's even better and better and better. Um, what is your opinion of the current state of, of cycling right now from a different perspective, not being in the barriers, but outside the barriers as a TV commentator? I'm surprised uh, in one way. Uh, I think the new generation, I love the way they are cycling. It's not so predictable that uh, we have seen in the old days with Sky Team controlling the whole race. I love when there is uh, younger riders like uh, Van der Poel uh, and um, Van Acht, all these guys that uh, attacking unpredictable, you know, and um, uh, they're coming from a different kind of uh, growing up in cycling. They're coming from cyclocross, they're coming from mountain bike. Even Kettle Evans also came from mountain bike. So I think that kind of training uh, has shown us that uh, there is a, there is many ways to roam, you know. Uh, and I think they do uh, something different than we did. Uh, also, I was a little bit different because I get a lot of shit because I was cross-country skiing and, and running in the wintertime. But I came down to to the spring races and I beat a lot of the, the guys because my condition was very hard. And I think this kind of cyclocross and uh, mountain biking uh, put them on a different level. And I'm I'm very happy to see the the way to, they race now in Targevo Bay, Flandern, and all these classics. And uh, these young guys are fantastic, you know. Uh, so and I'm also proud that we. Finally, have a Norwegian team, uh, Rex, uh, which is uh, they have Christoph, which is uh, still a star. I think he never gives up. He's getting also older than uh, most people. Uh, stop riding, riding when they are at his age, but he's still fighting. So um, that's very good for Norwegian perspective. We actually were lucky enough to have Kurt Asler Arvesen as a guest before, the director of the team. So we know all about it in Team yeah. Mono X. It's a fantastic project. Um, looking further into the season, then, um, I might see you at the Tour de France. You're going to be there at yeah, the yeah, Tour, right, yeah, Dr. I'm going to be there for the middle week on the motorbike for oh, German Eurosport. Good. The middle week on yep. a motorbike. So I think I'm going to see you. Who is your tip for the tour 
or who's your podium or what do you think oi um <laughs> i know it's a long but, way to yeah, go it's a long way to go and uh, but uh you know these slovenian guys are are very strong you know they, they it's a small country and they have three uh, top international riders and they two of them are, are winning big races but uh is uh, fantastic in the way he was winning flandern and uh, I think it's 48 years since a uh, tour winner did win Flandern. Uh, that was Eddie Merckx. I think he's one of my favorites. And it's nice to have a Danish guy that uh, that won last year. He, he is uh, a very strong rider. And I think he's going to be there after what I've seen already this year. He's racing very well. He did some performance that... Um, is uh, at the top level of uh, any climbers, you know. So I think it's going to be an interesting Tour de France, and I'm really looking forward to see. And I hope Unox, which is uh, a guest team uh, for the first time ever with the Norwegian team, I, they have some young riders that have done, uh, won Tour de l'Avenir, uh, you know, the young riders Tour de France, uh, mini Tour de France, and they get a little bit more time to grow up i think they can do something but this year they have to be here to learn you know well they always race aggressive they have a few wins so a stage win is always possible for team ono x don't you yeah. think so being in a breakaway a little bit of luck in the final kilometers and one of them might win they're definitely good enough to win don't you I think, think so? so i think they are uh, a little bit like when in 86, 87, 7-11 coming to Europe, uh, people were laughing a little bit of the American team. We we were the first team to have uh, female uh, masseurs. Uh, the the riders, the conservative teams, they were really shocked, you know. We were one of the first teams with uh, Cook. Uh, Andy Hampson had a Swiss guy, uh, which was a friend, and we rented a camping caravan. He was following and always giving us a pasta directly when we were coming to the, the restaurant for dinner, even with there were 10 teams, we were the only team eating. So, uh, you know, X, I think, I hope they can also do something and surprise people that, okay, coming from Norway, we have some good uh, athletes in many other sports, you know, biathlon and cross-country skiing and even alpine skiing. We have world-class, also football, you know, uh, Holland. So why not in cycling? I hope uh, we can be there one day with the Norwegian team with some guys competing with the best guys. I have one more question because it seems to be a hot topic and I kind of remember those unwritten rules. I I remember there was the pat a couple patrons of the Peloton, but you know, we asked this question to Jai Hinley a couple weeks ago and it's about respect in the Peloton. And a lot of the riders are complaining that, you know, everyone's just doing their thing. There's not those same rules. So from your generation, what were those rules, those unspoken rules that that you guys abided by? Paul, I think in one way, it was a little bit silly that there was rules. But, you know, Eddie, uh, not Eddie Merckx, but uh, Bernard Hinault was like the captain of the the whole peloton and if he decided or some of the old guys Ducle Lasalle or some of these old guys uh, decided okay to this is uh tomorrow is about mountain stage big mountain stage we go easy the first hill uh if somebody attacked them 
and he wasn't happy with it. You can tell, uh, I'm sure he, he gave that guy a really hard time if he didn't go away and win the race. So um, I think in one way for the sport, it's better that people can do whatever they want. You don't have these rules, but of course you have to respect each other. We are racing so many miles and so many hours and so many kilometers together. So even if you are on a different team, you have to treat with the respect. But you don't have to um, uh, let one capo decide everything in the peloton. I think uh, in one way it's better now that uh, they are free to attack when they want and they have to do their own tactics and... But of course, you need France also in the peloton. So it's difficult because I was not really into these unwritten rules when I was, because I was green when I started. I was not, I hadn't been in cycling for 10 years. I was quite new. So everything for me was new, you know, and I just had to follow these guys. And I was doing my things too, you know, attacking some silly, stupid places. And sometimes I get away, you know. And sometimes I get some good results and you get stronger. Hey, talking about um, older times and modern cycling, I sometimes dream that with magic, I could put Jack Anquetil, Eddie Merckx, Bernard Hinault, Pedro Delgado, Indurain into today's time. Give him six months of training and then all these heroes would race against Pogacar and Vingegaard. <laughs> you think Eddie Merckx, Bernard Hinault, they would be competitive still today? Different training, different bikes. I mean, they're all on the same bikes, the same technology. You think they would they would be still as good as they were back then? I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I'm also curious. It's a good question, and uh, I think it's a difficult question to answer. You know? uh, I think uh, the way uh, the training method, uh, all about the food, all, the, all about uh, the whole story, how to be the, your best performance. I think the quality of uh, the experts now are much better than 20 years ago or 30 years ago. When I started cycling in the 80s, they were shocked when I was coming with um, uh, my kind of food from Norway, you know, which uh, some professors in Norway with the skiers and everything, I think they were uh, ahead of uh, much of the French uh, system, which was very conservative. We were eating big beef in the morning uh, before the race and everything. And and then we brought something new into it. And I think uh, the training method is also much better now than it was uh, 30 years ago. But Eddie Merckx, Anquetil, all these guys, they were strong beasts. You know, they had the physic. Uh, but maybe um, with the, the way they trained in the old days, I don't think they would win today. Well... Norwegians seem to be taking over the world of triathlon and, you know, that new uh, term has been coined, the Norwegian method. So you guys yeah. are doing something quite right. But Dagato, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. I wish I understood uh, Norwegian or I'd follow you on on uh, your your broadcast, but I've got all these other buddies of mine that are commentators on on other um, <laughs> on other stations. But thank you so much for taking the time out today to share with Jens and I today here on Bobby and Jens. 
I, I would say uh, thank you to uh, having me. You know, it, it's a pleasure and uh, meeting two of the big stars from cycling. And uh, you, both of you, have much better results than me. And uh, I'm proud to be there. But uh, I'm sorry, my English is not perfect. And uh, if I should explain again everything that happened before I started cycling, I could do it much better. But I hope you understood a little bit of my story. And um, for me, it was a joy to be there. Same for us. I can assure we your English is pretty much perfect. We understood everything. And just like Bobby said, I'm so glad that you were our guest uh, today. So that was brilliant of you to be here. Thank you very much. And I hope to see you in Tour de France. And uh, maybe, Bobby Julik, I can see you in the US or someday or whatever. Uh, the last thing I would say, you know, when I was winning the bronze medal in the Olympics, Just before the day before we were going home, they we was in uh, Beverly Hills on a on a meeting with the Norwegian Council, and he said, "Yeah, just in the neighborhood here, there was an exclusive area. The one of the biggest athletes in the world live here, and who could that be? That could have been uh, in many many Norwegian eyes uh, a football player like you know, Pele or whatever. But it was Muhammad Ali. He lived uh, just a few houses around, and I said, shit." I should have a signature. And I went up there, knocked on the door, a big guard come out, and I said, I had a bronze medal in the Olympics, but I would love to have a signature. And he said, just a moment. And he closed the door, and he went in, and he come out, come in. And I was in Muhammad Ali's house no for one hour, you know. way. Boxing with him. Wow. Yeah. And I had a signature on my jersey, and uh, that was uh, fantastic, you know. So that was the top of the, on the Olympics uh, bronze medal. Signature of Muhammad Ali and going home and jumping professional. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that was quite a story <laughs> yeah. to the end. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing that. That was just a highlight yeah. for us. You went to Muhammad yeah. Ali's yeah, yeah, house, yeah. got in and talked to him. How that cool is that? Yeah. Well, that's all our time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Dog Otto Lordson for being our guest. Thanks for listening and please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. A few weeks ago, we spoke to Tom's Squinch and we just had to share some of your feedback. Barry Sherry said, I caught an error. Always a concern for podcasters. Tom's said he's good at everything, but not great at anything. Actually, he is great at being a human. A great episode with a great writer and an even better person. Well, I totally have to agree there, Jens, with, with Barry Sherry. Uh, Tom Squeenge is an awesome dude, always has been, and am a massive fan of his. I couldn't agree more, Bobby. He is a great person indeed. Interesting story, interesting background and he has many more good years to come. So it was fantastic to have him as our guest. Yes, I agree absolutely to Barry Cherry. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. And let us know whose posters you had on your childhood bedroom wall. Thank you.